Hello, I'm Daniel Wakelin. I'm Professor of Medieval English Paleography here in the University of Oxford and I'm a Fellow of St Hilda's College. And I want today to explore one of the most inspired decisions in the history of English writing. That is the realisation in the late 14th century that English was worth writing down, that English speech was worth writing down, and that one could become a writer in the vernacular or in the mother tongue. The everyday language and the everyday business conducted in it were together a powerful source of inspiration for the writer I'm going to discuss. But they inspired him to enshrine those things in the fixed form of writing, in material forms which give them dignity and allow them to last until today. The writer who I'm going to discuss is Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer was born in London soon after 1340, and though he's what we would call middle class, he rose to some prominence in the court of the royal family in London under Edward III and Richard II. He was a bureaucrat in the court, a pen pusher, and writing poetry wasn't his day job. He finally died in the year 1400. Chaucer and his contemporaries, many of whom are almost as inventive and brilliant as he is, were one of the first generations to have left us a lot of English written down. People had of course used English for many purposes for centuries before, and in the Anglo-Saxon era and soon after, they'd written a lot of it for religion, for science, for philosophy. But there'd been a lull for a couple of centuries. For the preceding few centuries, most writing in English had been frivolous and scanty. Serious writing had happened in England, in Latin or in French. Chaucer, though, realised that English was fit for purpose as a literary language. Some of his contemporaries, as I said, were also using English in interesting ways around the same time, and I want briefly to start by comparing a short poem that isn't by Chaucer. It's called Adam Lay Abounden, or Adam Lay Bound Up, and it likely dates from Chaucer's lifetime, although the written copy survives from a period a little bit later. It's a sign of somebody using English for the eminently practical purpose of teaching the basics of the Christian religion to ordinary folk who could not read theology or the Bible in Latin. English is here then utilitarian. It's for the practical purpose of saving souls. Before I read it, I should just quickly explain its message. In this poem, we'll hear that Adam, the first human male, has been bound up in hell for eating an apple in the Garden of Eden. God had told him not to do so, and so for this disobedience, all human beings were condemned to die eventually and to suffer in hell. But this poem cleverly turns that into a happy occurrence. Had not Adam eaten the apple, then been a, there would have been no need for us to have been saved by Jesus and by his mother, Mary. So the poem says that we should rejoice for Adam's fall because Mary thereby had a chance to save us. I'm going to read it first in the original pronunciation and you can see on the screen that there are some notes explaining some of the hard words. Adam lie bounden, bounden in a bond, for thousand winter, fochte not too long, and all was for an apple, an apple that he took, as clerkes finden, written in her book. Ne had the apple taken bain, the apple taken bain, ne had never o lady bain heaven quain. Blessed be the teamer that apple taker was, Therefore, we moon singen, Deo gracias. 
Reading this poem, and umpteen like it, there's a bewitching echo of song. Perhaps we can hear the voices of the people from the 14th century. And indeed, some 20th century composers later set it to music. After all, this refers to singing at the end. It ends, therefore we may sing, Deo gracias, and slips into the Latin song used in churches at the time. And it seems song-like as well, in these repetitions of phrases, the apple tarken bane, the apple tarken bane. Adam lie boonden, boonden, and al was for an apple, an apple. This is the sort of repetition that we tend not to have in formal writing, but that we do have in oral culture, such as nursery rhymes or children's songs, patter cake, patter cake, baker's man. This then seems like English speech or song, a sort of trace from the past. We can imagine a preacher singing to us, or getting us to sing it, just as we get children to sing improving songs at primary school to teach them lessons. Is it so innocent or song-like, though? Although it's about singing, it's also about writing. It reports not everyday events, but it reports what clerks or scholars in the church find written in their books, which would have been books in Latin, containing the tenets of the Christian religion. So this song depends on writing. And if we look again, the poem is quite bookish in its construction. Latin has crept into it at the end, as I said, Deo gracias. But there's also a sort of logical language that we might associate with clerks in a university or with writing in books rather than song. There's a sort of an abstract hypothetical situation. Had not the apple been taken, then had never Our Lady have been heaven's queen. And there's the word therefore. We don't tend to find these hypotheticals and words such as therefore in nursery rhymes. Therefore Jack and Jill fell down and broke their crown. It sounds weirdly bookish. Medieval Latin scholarship, however, was often logical like this. And the logic here diminishes the orality of this poem to some extent. It makes it feel less like a song than a lecture. So although we've got English used for something in verse here, it feels as though English is being used condescendingly, a kind of dumbing down, if you like, as we move learned matter from Latin into English, and to tell us, after all, what to think. I want to contrast now what happens in a short passage of Chaucer's poetry. In this passage, we see almost the opposite happening. Instead of the matter of books being turned into song, we see the matter of everyday spoken language being turned into a book. In Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, he tells us that he was on a pilgrimage from London to Canterbury and that he and his fellow pilgrims had a storytelling competition. And then the Canterbury Tales consists of those stories that were told en route. So the whole basic tenet of the work is that here we have an echo of spoken language. We have a report of speech. Instead of going to literary sources for our stories, we seem to be going to ordinary anecdote or um, verbal storytelling. In fact, that's a little bit of a deception. Many of the stories are based on learned Latin, French and Italian sources, but Chaucer doesn't really tell us that except in one or two instances. And in fact, those instances cause the other pilgrims to object to some extent. More typically, the people seem to be telling stories in their everyday fashion. And I want to look at the introduction to one of those stories. It's the tale told by a miller. As well as having learned figures, such as a clerk of the University of Oxford on the pilgrimage, Chaucer has a cook with a big lot of boils on his leg and a wife who rather enjoys sex too much. And here we have a miller. 
He's your average sort of Weatherspoons customer. He likes boozing and brawling. And in this passage, he announces he's going to interrupt the tale telling by the polite figures and tell a saucy story. And it's actually quite scandalous. It involves women putting their private parts out of windows to get them kissed and people farting in each other's faces. And so Chaucer announces that we need to be wary of this story. And of course, the announcement is because this tale is shocking, but also because it's thereby more exciting. It's rather like telling you that you shouldn't read this book makes you want to read it all the more. So here's how Chaucer introduces the, the, the miller's story. The miller is going to speak like this. But in Pilate's voice he gan to cree, and swore, be armours and be blood and boners, e can a noble taller for the noners. And Chaucer adds, he nolde his warders for no man forbear, but told his churl's tal in this manner. So what's happening here? Well, firstly, Chaucer is conjuring up the sound of real voices. We hear that the miller sounds like Pilate, Pontius Pilate from the Bible, but this is not a bookish illusion. In plays telling the Bible stories, Pilate in medieval England used to swear a lot and curse. So this is an echo of speech heard and on. Uh, so this is an echo of speech heard in drama, of spoken language. And we hear about swearing. These oaths in that second line are references to Jesus' body parts. So they're blasphemous swearing, they're re re references to God's body. And then we hear, ironically, that the miller points out that his tale will be noble. In fact, it's going to be far from noble. And there's a kind of jokey irony uh, that can only be really understood in context. And we're told that this is his manner, his manner of speaking. So Chaucer is conjuring up a voice here, a particular kind of voice. It's also, though, a piece of oral literature as well, because we know that people in the 14th and 15th centuries enjoyed reading books aloud to each other. They didn't do this because they were stupid or necessarily illiterate. They did it because it was sociable and enjoyable. So there's more orality here. And we have to remember that the Canterbury Tales was in part designed to be read aloud. That's what Chaucer then says here. He apologises to the people who are listening to his tale um, for telling them something so scandalous. Math thinketh that he shall rehearse it here, and therefore every gentle wicht he pry for God's love deemeth not that he sigh of evil intent, but for he mote rehearse her tale as alle, be they better or worse, or else falsen some of me matter. And therefore, whoso listed natty hera, turn over the leaf and chairs another taller, for he shall find enough, great and smaller, of storial thing. What's going on here? He's addressing, first of all, an audience of uh, gentiles, of noble people at the court where he worked. Gentile in the second line meant genteel, as in gentleman. And we've got the reference to himself as a person present. I pray, I say. We tend not to expect novelists now to refer to themselves in the first person, unless they're imitating another character. We don't expect A.S. Byatt to address us as A.S. Byatt, but Chaucer can do that because he's present reading to us when this work is first heard. And he refers to praying or begging a request from an audience and saying, these are things that only make sense in speech. But those words also rhyme. It's carefully crafted speech. And he also tells us that he's reporting the speech of these other people, but he's being slightly false here. He surely couldn't remember the words that the pilgrims told him for all of the 200, 300 odd pages of the Canterbury Tales. It's fake. 
this is not real speech. And he hints at the fakeness when he says, I moot or must rehearse in the fourth line there, every single word that they told at me, every single word. As soon as somebody says that they must do something, we normally know that they're over-egging their point a little bit. And so he is here. This is actually fictionalized speech in some ways. And what's odd here is that having addressed us personally, he then imagines that we might not want to listen to him after all. He actually refers to the physical book from which this speech would be read aloud, or in which we might want to read it silently for ourselves without him being present. He, instead of addressing every genteel person, here he addresses whoso or whosoever or whoever might not want to hear this, as if he doesn't know entirely who's present. The book has escaped from his immediate coterie to a wider readership. And then he says that we might ourselves turn over the leaf, the leaf of the book, and choose another tale. And he says that he, he, anybody in general, might find another story here, should he so wish. So instead of Chaucer reading from his book to us, he's reminding us that we might be reading to ourselves and making choices about what to read. The last um, line here includes the phrase, historical, storial thing. We might then be reading something more learned as well. What he's done is take an ordinary speech and turn it into a physical, fixed, memorialised form. He's given it dignity. Even a Miller's swearing, even a Miller's story about farting and kissing private parts could be fixed into a book and made into something worth, worth passing on to whosoever might hear it. Even people as far distant as we are, all because of that as inspired decision to turn speech into writing in the late 14th century. Thank you.